that's one of the, the key questions I ask when someone is in crisis. Who do you talk to? Who's there for you? How often do you talk to that person? And really helping them take an inventory of who their support systems are. And then exploring with them if they're struggling with something or working through a problem. How did you resolve it? Who did you talk to about it? I keep asking those questions, letting them know that it's okay, so that eventually they begin to tell me about the key players in their lives who are there to support them. And many times, people struggling with a very difficult situation of maybe physical illness, and I've heard this a number of times with families, that someone is very, very sick in the family, maybe even catastrophic or terminal illness, and they don't want to tell anyone. They don't want to say that they need support. The Big Silence. Hello, it's your girl, Karina. Welcome back to the Big Silence podcast. Thank you, as always, for being here and supporting these really important conversations that we have. Number one, I want to talk about the Not Alone Challenge that the Big Silence and myself and my friends are doing again this year through the holiday season with my friend Jewel. It's such an important challenge to make sure that we check in with our friends over the holiday season and make sure that they know they are not alone. And I want you to know you are not alone. We are here for you as a community. You are not alone. And with the Not Alone Challenge, you can go to the link. It's on thebigsilence.com or link in the bio at the Big Silence or my personal Instagram, Karina Dawn. And we are auctioning off two things. One is to be a guest on this podcast and you can come to my home studio and have a conversation with me. Number two is to be a Tone It Up trainer in the Tone It Up app, uh, which is really exciting. So go to the links in the show notes and in the bio and get more information on that. And without further ado, I want to introduce today's guest, this week's guests, Dr. Dana Gaffney and Nicole Foster. They have a new book out called Courageous Well-Being for Nurses and Strategies for Renewal. So I wanted to have this conversation because I have so many nurse friends who, you know, pandemic really gave them burnout and a lot of trauma and now healing. How do we do this? What are the tools? So this is a wonderful conversation. Again, if you have someone who works in healthcare, please share this with them. I even, during this conversation, was like, hey, these tips and tools are something that everybody can apply in their daily life. So share this episode. Of course, always subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an ep. And sending you love. Welcome to the Big Silence podcast, psychotherapist Dr. Donna Gaffney and wellness coach Nicole Foster. Also, authors of the book I am holding right here and I've been traveling with, uh, Courageous Well-Being for Nurses, which came out this year in September. This is a great conversation I want to have. I have a lot of friends that are nurses and probably I need to give them this book. Um, but first, I'd like to talk about how the two of you connected and why this book now. I'll begin and then I'll hand off to Nicole to finish the story. I had been working with frontline nurses at the beginning of the pandemic, workshops, lectures, pro, pro bono psychotherapy, facilitating groups, and some of the issues kept coming up over and over again, what they needed, how difficult things were. 
I said to myself, I really need to put this all in one place and uh, thought about something, either a website or a book. And then I, uh, a colleague told me about Nicole's website and uh, I looked at her website. She had a lovely PDF called Wellbeing in the Waiting. And because she covers food and nutrition and sleep as part of her practice, I thought we might be a good combination. So I invited her and Nicole, take it from there. Yeah, I was so grateful when Donna reached out. I had just finished my grad program at Columbia, getting my master's in psychology and emphasis in spirituality, mind-body studies. And I knew that all that I've learned and what I was doing coaching as well was so applicable to nurses and to be a part of this project and kind of create something that was a guidebook and something that they could rely on as well as include those nurses' stories was something that I was so grateful to be a part of and continue to be grateful to be a part of. Yeah, I love how you combine, obviously, coming from Tone It Up and the fitness and wellness and our nutrition plan, how you combine and uh, the chapters on food, the importance of brain food, and the importance of daily movement. I think that's so important when we talk about mental health. But let's go back. I mean, we'll just talk about COVID-19 and the shift for you know, nurses, doctors, and psychologically how that really affected them having to go to work every day. And then the stories that I heard from even my friends and then not taking care of themselves. I heard this so often in in my private practice as well as in the groups I facilitated that uh, they were spent, they were stressed, they felt that they didn't have enough to do their job. And they also felt that, you know, they, they, they knew it was in their mission to save as many lives as possible. So they put aside some of the things that we normally draw boundaries around and said, I have to do what I have to do to get this done, to save lives. But they could also tell how it was wearing on them, that they, you know, not being able to see their families, their support systems was very difficult. Some of them stayed in hotels. So they really were at a loss for connecting with people, except that one, um, ER nurse from New York City reminded me that his roommate was not a healthcare professional. So he stayed at home and he worked from from home. And and this um, ED nurse said to me, but you know what? I go see my family every day, my work family. So I knew that there was something going on, some kind of collective support that they were sharing with each other. And I do believe that that's really what got them through the pandemic. But the pandemic's over, and now there are a whole new set of issues to deal with. Right. I, I never thought of it that way, how I guess everyone, there's the group that was isolated at home. And then at least, you know, yeah, their work family, if you know, have some kind of socialization. So now I feel, you know, we're still talking about the pandemic and it's over. But what in your work have you seen, Donna, of the residual effects of it? Well, I I have to refer back to the title of of this podcast and and your book. We are seeing the big silence. Healthcare providers are not getting the mental health care that they need for any number of reasons. Just this week, two studies came out, one from CDC and one from MIT, saying that a third of the people who were surveyed are experiencing depression, a half are anxious. And this is is greater than it was in, in you know, before the pandemic, this was the end of the, this study was in 2022. 
And the Surgeon General um, has a, an incredible report that talks about how we can really promote well-being in the workplace. And we all have to come together and sort of recognize this. You know, there are toxic environments that nurses have to endure. And then most recently, there was uh, in August, a letter sort of hit the internet uh, about this young nurse, Tristan Kate Smith, who completed suicide and her parents found a letter on her computer addressed to her abuser. The abuser was the hospital system that she couldn't get what she needed from them and felt that she couldn't ask for help because she would be labeled because if she was be, she would be seen as incapable or, you know, we're supposed to be strong. I'm not supposed to ask for help. And so therefore, many healthcare professionals are not getting the treatment that they need. Right. And that goes back to stigma. You don't want to say, oh, I need to, I'm suffering from depression, anxiety. I need to see a therapist. I, you know, need help. Yeah. You're supposed to be this strong person when we go to the hospital, like that nurse, that doctor, like they are there to take care of you. So there cannot be that weakness, that stigma of it. So what is your advice to anyone in the healthcare industry that is suffering in silence and afraid to ask for help? Well, it's very interesting. I, I do some uh, work for the Emotional PPE Project, and I will get emails from nurses saying, I, I thought I could deal with this, but I, I, I can't. I'm struggling with this. And the first thing I say to them is, I'm so glad that you reached out, sort of welcoming them into the fold of it's it's so good that you're taking taking care of yourself. I think that healthcare administrations have to promote well-being and mental health and to let people know it's okay and to clarify the myths that surround um, getting treatment for mental health. You know, I think that much of the work that is in the content that is in our book really is about sort of laying the foundation the final chapter is really about how do you go about get taking care of yourself? How do you get into treatment? How do you know what to look for? How do you find a therapist? And so that's, you know, really what we do is begin to lay the foundation within well-being and talk about it, talk about it a lot. Yeah, I think it's so important to talk about it because look at what you are going through on a day-to-day -day at your work. When my mom was in hospice the last three days, I was with her and the hospice nurses came in and that is their job. And I asked them, I was like, how do you deal with this every single day? And she's like, we all are just so passionate. We all have a story of why we do this work. And we're here because we want to give back. And this particular nurse actually told me, she's like, we take care, I make sure to take care of myself because my job is very heavy and do all the things, which we'll talk about what you lay out in the book as the, I always call it the toolbox. So I have a question. Do healthcare workers have, does, like usually have insurance that covers therapy or to see a mental health expert? They usually do. Their insurance policy through the hospital, their healthcare insurance probably covers this, but they sometimes are afraid to use it because they fear that it's going to get back to their employer. So that's why so many online services have popped up because they, the more accessible treatment is, the easier it is to get, the more people will use it. So yes, they are, they are covered from different insurance policies. 
Yeah, and that's, so we have a therapy for all program at the Big Silence where our donations come in. So the people who either don't have health insurance or they're afraid to use it through their their job uh, can come to us and apply. So it's completely uh, anonymous. Even like healthcare leave, let's talk about the stigma or health, mental health leave. Um, I have a friend who recently took off 12 weeks for mental health leave and their their job did support it and covered that. However, they weren't doing great and now they're back at work and using work as a, just a way to escape. So but how do you work through that? I help my clients transition back to work and I have had a number of clients take the time to really invest in their, their mental health and, and re, re, respond to you know, what it was about that work situation. So I stay connected with them as they re-enter their work experience. And we talk about it. We talk about it twice a week, three times a week, as many times as necessary of what, what is going on. We do a lot of preparation before they go back to work so that they are not surprised by anything. And they have the tools and the words to use when someone says, where were you? Or where I miss seeing you. So we give them the information that they need to sort of address those questions. What would you, can you share what you would say if someone's like, where were you? And this can go from any occupation that you have. If you need to take some time off, but you want some privacy, you don't want that stigma, what would you advise people to say? Well, it, we sort of work that through in the therapeutic process and, and you know, go through exactly the question that you just asked. Okay, your, your, your friends, their, friend, their close friends are going to know um, because they will have told them. So they'll be sort of their front line and protect them from other kinds of questions. But say somebody is on in, in an office setting or a nursing uh, setting where they're, they're, somebody comes in that they don't really know and or know, don't know that well. And someone says, hey, it's good to see you. I haven't missed you for a while. Where were you? I think that there's a moment that you are caught off guard and say, oh my gosh, how am I going to answer that question? But you can also say, and we, you know, we prepare them for this. I just need to take a little time for for my health, and we have them drop out the word mental health because they at least feel a little bit more comfortable. But then um, a number of my clients have said that they were afraid to go into therapy because of what people would think. And one, uh, actually, her story is is. Um, in the self-compassion chapter. And she says, you know, now, you know, I was afraid to tell people, you know, that about self-compassion, I was afraid to tell people in therapy. She said, but now after I understand it, I tell everybody and I tell that they should all be in therapy. So those people who go through the process then become proponents of, of mental health care. And that's really just really exciting to see. Yeah. Well, I can tell even from, let's say 20 years ago, when I went to my first therapy session and there was such like that stigma around it like oh therapies for crazy people and I was like what I, I literally my boyfriend at the time was like why would you go to therapy where now you just keep talking about it and opening up that conversation and normalizing it and then it's just it's it's great I love therapy I think everyone should be in it you know and even some sometimes preventative ther therapy even in a marriage or anything like that um, it's right. Right, right. It's a great resource. And it's a lot of education. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, when someone approaches me for the first time, I immediately send them five articles. And one is 
why everybody needs therapy. And the other one is by Kristen Neff, the myths of self-compassion. So I begin to do a lot of psychoeducation to really establish the foundation before we begin the hard work. So you have, say you're a nurse and you have a really tough job. You're compassionate about it and you love your work, but it can be very stressful. Uh, So how do you manage those boundaries when you come home? It's a challenge for sure, because I, I think most people tend to bring some of their work home with them. We have an exercise uh, in the book called shedding, and uh, we want people to visually and physically go through the process of shedding work for the day. And it begins to let people know, and I, I learned this from an extraordinary art therapist who was covered with paint after working with kids all day, that she had to change her clothes. and. And then she just began to do it more. And the physical activity of taking your clothes off, putting them in the laundry, putting on something comfortable, sweats or whatever, lets you know that you are now home and you have left work behind. Turning off pagers, if you can, a a lot of healthcare professionals can't, and allowing yourself to move away from those moments and to not continue to carry work with you. We see people who are struggling with sleep uh, because they're replaying the whole day in in their heads as they're trying to go to sleep at night. So we do a lot of, uh, we have a lot of tools that help people really separate out work from home. And very often the people that you live with are the ones that call you out first and say, I'm not your boss. Don't get angry at me because whatever. (laughs) Get home and just like angry or just yeah. <clears throat> right. Exhausted. Right. And then uh, your partner wants to spend quality time with you, but your mind is somewhere else. And I've had to learn those boundaries in my own marriage, too, where I come home and uh, stressful day at work. And I, I guess I had this type of shedding. This is a little, uh, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of examples and the book has so many great tools. But mine was my um, therapist at the time. Gwen Dittmar, she's on the podcast. She's like, pull up in your driveway, write everything out on a piece of paper, rip it up, burn it, put it away. You're done. (laughs) And then go inside and enjoy time with your husband. So important. So important. Mm -hmm. And also when you're transitioning from work to home, you know, whether you're taking public transportation or driving, create a playlist that begins to move you from the stress of work to Sometimes the stress at home, but it's a different kind of a stress. So that that's something that another tool to use. But the writing is so important. I I sometimes tell my clients, keep a pad next to your bed with a pen that lights. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, write it down, close the turn off the light, go back to sleep. It's there, it's out of your head. And then if they need to burn it the next day, they can. Well, Gwen was like, burn it so no one can find it. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's the important thing too about journaling and everything for, for me. And it's it's got to get out of your head. Like, how can you do that? The shedding, the writing. I think that's such an important tool that is so simple. So what are some other uh, tools? And uh, Nicole, I think this would be great for you to talk about in the book. I know on chapter five is all about nourishment and the importance of food. And I think a lot of people don't see the uh, how food and what we put in our body affects our brain. 
Yeah, I think what it comes down to, and I think conversations around just being intentional and figuring out what works for you and around nourishment and food, you know, there's lots of different guidelines that we could follow. One of the ones that I really like studying the blue zone and kind of what are these areas of the world that are so health promoting and what are these certain foods that we can add in, adding in more of like a plant slant to our diet. But for some people that might not work as ideal, but I think just being more intentional around like, what am I eating? How am I nourishing myself? How am I feeling? And is food something that's bringing you joy or is it something that, you know, is just like another thing to like get done throughout the day? And maybe leaning into how can I make it something that I do enjoy and I have something to look forward to. And I know that coming home from a long day and like creating a meal for yourself or your family might be another task you don't enjoy, but how can we add more joy to that? And I think leaning into that as well as having connection around food. Um, There was a great story from one of our storytellers in the book around how um, when they were finally kind of able to have more close contact with their colleagues, everyone had like a potluck and brought something they loved and they really were able to connect over having a meal with one another. I think there's so many different ways food can nourish us from that emotional side to that side of fueling us and helping our physical health and mental health throughout the day. And I think it's a strategy of figuring out what works best for each of us, um, but kind of leaning into more of those whole foods that really nourish us. I think it's a great place to start. Yeah, all of the the brain foods that you list are totally in line with all the tone it up plan that we have, nutrition plan and everything. And it's really good advice in there. And what would you say for someone in healthcare who's on their feet all day, maybe long days, making sure that they stay nourished while they're working? Any tips there? I would just say planning ahead, kind of having an idea of how you can prepare meals in advance that feel good for you and help you especially if you're someone who's working kind of irregular hours or a night shift, you need to eat throughout those moments where people aren't normally having meals. So figuring out what foods sit well with you and what foods fuel you. Um, and I think Donna, you might add too, that like in some professions in nursing, that food is given as like a thank you. And it could be treats or things like that that are wonderful. But if they become kind of something daily that maybe are making you crash a little bit more at work, just kind of taking inventory around how is this serving me? Yeah, that, that's been a, a, such a great question. That's been a real issue uh, that nurses don't have time to drink water. They don't have time to take a bathroom break. And yesterday, last week I was um, facilitating a group and one of the presenters was talking about what she started at her hospital called a care cart. And she put all of these healthy snacks and bottles of water and went to every single unit, brought it around and offered the staff the respite of choosing something that was healthy for them as well. I love the name Care Cart. And if she doesn't come around often enough, they'll say, hey, where were you? You know, we missed you. So that's really important. And that was an idea completely generated from that nurse and and her team. Yeah, I love that. Every hospital should have a Care Cart. I won't go on a whole nutrition rant, but including, I think that hospital food needs to change <laughs> all together. I remember when my mom was in the hospital for three months and I saw what they were feeding her and she was very sick and physically and mentally. And I just started bringing her fresh food and green juices and she like never ate green juices. 
or drank them. She finally did, and she started healing once changing the food. But that's a story for another day. Okay, so can we talk about what was the the chocolate meditate mindfulness meditation? I think a lot of people mm-hmm. would want to do this. I started that oh a number of years ago when I was would be planning a workshop that had maybe some topics that were heavier. So I wanted people to understand what it meant to be mindful and to meditate. And and the chocolate uh, meditation has been used by a number of people. I think ours is adapted from a colleague in the UK. It's just this process of taking dark chocolate, or if you're allergic to chocolate, raisins or something like that, and um, really exploring every aspect of that food that is right in front of you and going very slowly. So you unwrap it and you feel the texture of it on, on your tongue and you swallow, take a bite and swallow a little bit. And it takes a good, I would say 10 minutes to do it. It's a great way to engage people in the process of what it means to meditate. So it's, it is something that I, I usually bring it with me to, uh, to workshops and lectures, and it would be something that, that should be on the care cart as well. Yes. The Mm -hmm. chocolate meditation. (laughs) It is, that is a good point because a lot of people are scared of meditation, which I think is so important in our wellness toolbox to have along with daily movement, which you talk about in chapter six. And uh, a lot of my nurse friends, I'm like, hey, you want to go work out? They're like, oh no, I was on my feet all day. That was my workout, walking up and down the hallways. So let's talk about the importance of daily movement outside of work and in some nature and the sunshine? Well, I think um, one of the group of nurses that I worked with, they realized that very issue. They needed to be outside. And so what they did is they, instead of eating their lunch in the hospital, in the cafeteria or whatever, they, they brought their lunches and they went outside in the parking lot and they combined dance and, and movement and exercise and got outside every day in the sun. The nature and the sun are available to us pretty much all all day, every day, um, except for at night, of course. People don't think about the value that nature has, that I actually, in my practice, do some ecotherapy where we actually are outside. Um, Last week, I was in New York, so I walked through Central Park with my client. And it, it puts into perspective it grounds you because the green color is, you know, the green space is so important. It grounds you, allows you to see how big you are in the scheme of things or how small you are in the scheme of things. But the movement in, and I think, Nicole, you can tell the story of um, of our one nurse who uh, who was walking to work every day and got a little scared uh, on her way. So why don't you can share that one with uh there's um, one of our nurse storytellers shares around working during the COVID-19 early pandemic. And she was in a city that was, no one was out anymore. And she would change her commute. So she was no longer taking public transportation. She was driving herself, but she had to park away from the hospital. And so she would walk every morning. And one morning, something just came over her and she just started running. And it was this kind of moment of empowerment and liberation because she had been a runner her whole life and she realized that she hadn't been running throughout this really intense stressful period of her her life through the covid and her body knew what to do and it was just this beautiful story of how she was able to harness within her something that she always had and it was something that she 
then became routinely doing every morning. She would just run to work with her things on her, just putting her speakers on ready to go. And it was a way for her to calm her mind and her nervous system in some ways where she was able to have this moment for herself before taking care of others for the day. And even something like that, where it's like a little bit not the norm, but figuring out what kind of movement works for you and feels best for you. Running a 5K or a marathon isn't for everyone. And knowing your limitations and knowing what your body needs, I think it's so important in this conversation around movement and figuring out what works for you and not choosing something that you think you should be doing and really disliking it, but choosing something that brings you joy. And maybe that's something energetic, like dance and movement in that sense, or maybe it's slowing down, doing a yoga class or walking in nature, like we were just saying, but figuring out what works for you. And I think that story just embodies all of that. Yeah. And I think it's important too, just to listen to your body. One day you want one thing, the next you want to do something else. And as I were talking about this and I'm thinking in my head, this can, I was thinking of my friend who's a a C-suite at UPS and sits in a office with no windows for 13 hours a day and doesn't get out of his chair. Like he needs to get out in nature on his lunch break and dance. <laughs> I don't know, eat something <laughs> healthy. And it, you can go with for so many things. For all of us, we are indoors a lot and making that conscious choice, whether we put it in our phone as a reminder, like get up and walk around, go outside, take a deep breath. It's so important in any career that we all have to just take all of these tools, nourishment, hydration, movement, meditation, um, calling a friend, not isolating. I had a podcast guest with a doctor recently and he said isolation um, was just, I hope I'm not quoting this wrong, but 15 times worse than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And in terms of like cause of death. And so the importance of socialization. And as we come out of this, and a lot of my friends still don't socialize as much or get out as much. We got so used to being alone. So any tips on that, Donna? I always ask people in my practice who their team is, who's there for you. And how often do you see that person? But I just want to go back to the isolation and loneliness that you brought up. Such an incredibly important topic. As a matter of fact, the Surgeon General of the United States is kicking off a campus-wide, nationwide tour of campuses to help kids sort of fight against this loneliness um, that they are experiencing, which was solidified, of course, during the pandemic. That's one of the, the key questions I ask when someone is in crisis. Who do you talk to? Who's there for you? How often do you talk to that person? And really helping them take an inventory of who their support systems are. And then exploring with them if they're struggling with something or working through a problem. How did you resolve it? Who did you talk to about it? I keep asking those questions, letting them know that it's okay, so that eventually they begin to tell me about the key players in their lives who are there to support them. And many times people struggling with a very difficult situation of maybe physical illness. And I've heard this a number of times with families that someone is very, very sick in the family, maybe even catastrophic or terminal illness, and they don't want to tell anyone. They don't want to say that they need support. And so this happened with one of my clients and I said, what did, 
what do you think will happen if you tell someone, well, I don't want to be pitied. I don't want to have that pity. And I, and so we talked about that for a little bit. And then she actually tested it with a, I said, well, why don't you tell one friend and just see what happens? And she was shocked that that friend was so supportive to her. And then she told more people and more people and she surrounded herself with that support system that she would ultimately need when her husband died. So um, sometimes we don't believe that sharing our sharing our lives, sharing our struggles with other people is helpful. But and you also need to know who you can share things with. That there may be people who don't respond, and that can actually turn you off. So that's a real tough one, also to to struggle with. Yeah, because there's always if you're on the receiving end of someone reaching out and sharing what they're going through. I've seen reactions of someone who doesn't know how to respond can push you away or make it about them. So what would your advice be if you're receiving something from someone you know, a friend, a loved one, and they're sharing with you what they're going through? What is the best way, in your opinion, how to respond? Such a such an important question that serves us well throughout our lives. I do a lot of work with grieving families, and I found that the the parents, the adults in the family who were grieving would have to tell their friends what they wanted them to say. Mm. Because the, the worst thing that you can say to anyone who is sharing this life-changing traumatic event is to say, I know exactly how you feel. Because we don't know how they feel. We cannot walk in those shoes. And that was something when a nurse told me early in the pandemic. She said that her supervisor came onto the unit and she had just lost a patient. She was very upset. She wasn't usually a, 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 on that particular unit. So this was new for her. So she was struggling. So her supervisor came over and said, oh, what's, what's going on? And she said, I'm just really having a hard time. My patient died and I'm really feeling pretty upset about it. And the supervisor said, oh, I know exactly how you feel. I had a flat tire on the highway the other day, and I just didn't know how I was going to get through it. Whoa. So, no. <laughs> so I, I mean, tone deaf in terms of how do you respond to people. So thank goodness you brought it up, and we worked it through. And uh, I said, so what are you going to say to her next time you see her? And we have to educate those people if we're grieving, if we're struggling with an illness in the family. And someone says, oh, you'll get through it or it'll pass, which is, of course, one of the all-time favorites. Um, uh, or I've heard, get, when are you going to get, get over it? Like, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. There is no getting over loss, any kind of trauma. We integrate it into our lives. So I, I work with um, people to uh, get, let's come up with five things that you can say when somebody sticks you in that corner. And and having the tools ready because when they by the time they come to see me and tell me about the incident, time has passed and they 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 don't have the tools ready. So it's about being ready, and and telling people that that's not acceptable, which is really hard because you think they're coming to support you, but they're not doing it exactly. Yeah, the way that it's going to be most therapeutic for you. So, what are some of the the five ways that how you can respond? I appreciate your reaching out to me, but what I really need right now is fill in the blank. 
thank you so much for uh, recognizing this is going on in my life, but I am working it through with another a person who is a therapist or a support or counselor, and I'm going to really address that with them. And acknowledging that they have reached out to you, but then saying what's not appropriate and saying something like, I appreciate you talking to me, but I'm really uncomfortable with the way you phrase that. Let me tell you how I'd like you to ask me that question. So the first part is acknowledgement. The second part is how it sits with you. The third part is what you want from them. I mean, so often a grieving family will, people will come up to me and say, oh, let me know what you need. That's the last thing people can identify at this time. You're not in that headspace of, I don't know what I need right now. Come up with a list of, if somebody says, let me know what you need, say exactly that. I don't know what I need right now, but please keep checking in with me because so often people push away and they, they don't engage anymore. Yeah. I think checking in is the best and just having someone there to listen to you. And this is my own personal opinion. Uh, I don't, I'm not, when I'm grieving, I'm not asking for, it's not your responsibility to give me the advice that I need. I'm working through it. I'm talking to a professional, but maybe just make sure that, check in on me, make sure I'm not alone. That's great advice. And certainly something that I tell nurses who are struggling with loss in their workplace, that they need to recognize that they too are going to grieve for this patient that they lost and for the family. And they need to collectively come together, sort of to address this collective grief that they might be experiencing. It's a tough road, but uh, one of the people that wrote a story for our book um, talked about how when she was leaving her position, she actually changed locations within the hospital, which was a big struggle for her to make that decision. Someone came up, a colleague came up to her and said, I just want to tell you, thank you so much because you were there for my first death. And what a difference that made for both of them, that they could see that support that they gave each other at the very difficult time. Yeah. I feel like every hospital before you leave, you should have a therapist standing at the door and be like, (laughs) what can we debrief before you go home? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that is so true and such a good idea. And and we have people in the hospital who can can do those kinds of things. They bring to people together in groups and during the pandemic some hospitals did an extraordinary job. They rotated people away from the COVID unit. The only sir worked on the COVID unit for 2 weeks. And then they had group meetings with people. They just a drop-in place where they could come and they could talk. I mean the the groups that I facilitate online we still have 100 people signing up for this group every month. Still 100 people. So it's uh, something that's so important. Yeah, the rotation. One of my friends who works in ICU and she was in the COVID unit and she's like, I can't do this anymore. She's like, I'm going to go work at the plastics office now because everyone's happy who comes in there. I was like, you go, girl. Mm-hmm. But no, it's such a, I mean, it's the work that everyone in healthcare, like we need, it's such an important job and the courage to do that. And actually the name of your book, Courageous Wellbeing for Nurses, like uh, it's, uh, you know, so much gratitude for everyone who is responsible. Our lives are in your hands so often, but okay. So tell me 
this book, because I mentioned earlier, I feel like it's not just for people in healthcare because all of the tools in here and it, it, it breaks it down really easily and even breath work and it makes it not intimidating to take all these tools. So if you're brand new to any educating yourself on this and hearing these stories and realizing you're not alone, where can we get this book? Um, Nicole, you want to give our laundry list of places where you can get the book? <laughs> yes, it's published by Johns Hopkins University Press. You can get it directly from them. It's also on Amazon, Good Shop, I believe, and wherever books are sold. So we hope if whether you're a nurse or you're someone who's just looking to improve their well-being, learn some more strategies and tools, we think this is a great read for you. And we really hope you appreciate it and find the strategies and stories supportive for you. I will put all the links to in the show notes, but I also think I've got two nurse friends that I want to get this and send this for the holidays as a gift. It would be great because uh, all of the support that they need. And I think that I, one of the things I say to someone who says, well, well, I'm, I'm not a healthcare professional. I don't, should I get this? And I, I tell them, if you know a nurse, if you are a nurse, if you know a nurse, if you love a nurse, if you want to be inspired by a nurse, then this book is for you. That's our take on it. Or if you just want to know how to do a chocolate mindfulness meditation. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that too. Yes. Well, Donna and Nicole, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. I really appreciate it. And keep doing the good work that you are doing and making the world a better place. And, and you as well. <laughs> thank you so yeah. much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. The big silence.